We will be spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking about something about which uh, most of us are all too familiar, debt. Debt is something we often talk about only in relationship to government debt. I mean, that is when we're kind of talking about the well-being of our economy. But private debt, the debt that is accumulated by you and me and others and businesses and so on, uh, that is a very significant player in our economy and in our economic well-being. And a really, really interesting book about the nature of debt has just been published and it's a book that helps us understand how debt can be, uh, in a sense, uh, both a creative and destructive force uh, in our lives and, uh, and in terms of, of, of the well-being of a given economy. The book is called The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. The author of the book is Richard Vague, who recently served as Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and before that, an extensive professional career that has included work in banking, energy, uh, even the arts. Uh, he was a managing partner of Gabriel Investments, uh, Investment, uh, an early venture capital company, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Energy Plus, and co-founder and CEO of two different banks, and the author of several previous books, among them an illustrated business history of the United States, a brief history of of um, doom, 200 years of financial crises, and the case for a debt jubilee. Uh, that's a recent book that touches on one of the intriguing themes that he raises in this new book, The Paradox of Debt, which is published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Richard Vague, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be with you. I look forward to this uh, very much. I do need to say at the outset I am a bit of an idiot when it comes to uh, a lot of what you you talk about. And uh, I'm impressed with your book and a little bit with myself that I was actually able to make my way through so much of this because some of this is really complicated stuff and you don't shy away from the complexity of the topic. And I, I do appreciate that as well as uh, your ability to kind of frame this in ways that make sense to people who are not as deeply steeped in these matters. And I suspect that's an interesting challenge for somebody like you writing uh, books for the general public on some of these topics. Well, I do think that, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head with your comments. It's, it's a subject we need to understand. It's a subject that we need to talk about plainly and clearly. And I've tried really hard to do that in this book. Uh, and and I, I argue that you know, if we know how to you know, balance our checkbook and make our own investments, it's very possible to understand the economy as a whole because all the economy is is the sum of all the individuals and businesses and other institutions in it. So uh, the same principles apply. One of the points made very early in the book is the significant amount of private debt that there is uh, right now in our country. And you spell out uh, the numbers, uh, 27 plus trillion dollars of private debt. Can you take that figure apart for us uh, a little bit in terms of 
where that amount of debt is, in a sense, housed uh, over the over the span of the uh, U.S. economy? Yeah, I mean, most folks don't think about this because there's always conversation about government debt, but there's more private sector debt than government debt in the U.S. economy. It's about $40 trillion worth of private sector debt. That's business and household debt versus $30 trillion of public debt. And that $40 trillion splits roughly in two, about half of that or $20 trillion is household debt and about half is business debt. And if you want to take one step further, uh, most of uh, household debt is household mortgage debt. So about $13 trillion of the $20 trillion in, in household debt is mortgage debt. And then you have a lot of much smaller pieces after that. Credit card debt is about $1 trillion. Uh, student debt is about a trillion eight. Um, uh, auto lending debt is a little over a trillion. So that's kind of how it breaks down. And that, it's the private sector debt piece that we think is the more important to understand if we want to understand the economy. Right. And it's also the piece that tends to get a little less attention. I mean, not so much in terms of like, I think most people have some acquaintance with their own debt. I mean, in their own lives. Uh, I mean, although I mean that certainly people are capable of a lot of obliviousness, but but nevertheless, I mean, we have some understanding of our own personal debt. I think what you're saying is we don't talk at all about kind of the cumulative private debt that is out there. Our own debt, our neighbor's debt, our kid's debt, our parents' debt. I mean, all of our friends, our, everybody who lives in our community, all bearing some level of personal debt or private debt. And, and I think you're saying we just don't think about that in those kind of terms as much as we should. Well, especially when it comes time for kind of the boom and bust cycle that we had so clearly in 2008. Uh, So, you know, make make no mistake, the economy cannot grow, and we cannot have new things like new factories or new homes unless we incur debt to do so. But periodically in economic history, uh, it gets overdone. We have too much of a good thing, you know, in, in 2002, mortgage debt was $5 trillion and it exploded from that point in time and was $10 trillion or double that amount by 2007. That's the reason we had the great global financial crisis. We simply had far too many mortgages, far too many homes had been built than people wanted or needed to buy. Lots of mortgage loans were made to folks with no income, no job, no asset, the famous ninja loans, and it all came tumbling down. So watching debt for both good and bad, watching private sector debt for both good and bad, I think is absolutely uh, central to understanding the economy. Yes, and of course that's one of the central principles of your book, the idea that not all debt is bad. We need some debt. Our economies cannot function, nor nor 
propel forward and grow without some debt. But debt cannot be uh, accumulated in unlimited fashion. I mean, at some point, it becomes more destructive than creative, and we'll be talking about that in just a little bit. At one point early in the book, you say, uh, in order to really properly discuss uh, this topic, we need to not be afraid of asking really basic questions like, what is money? (laughs) What is debt? What is wealth? Uh, I was a little bit surprised uh, to see that uh, in the book, but uh, I mean, the the more I read about it and thought about it, the more sense that made. I mean, we do make some glib assumptions that we are always talking about the same thing when we are, for instance, talking about money and debt and wealth, and uh, and we're not, or we have to really be careful that we are using those terms properly. Uh, What do you want us to know about the answer to questions as basic as those? Well, there is an almost unlimited amount of discussion about that, and you hear terms all the time when discussion of um, government debt is occurring about we're printing money, we're doing this, we're doing that, the money supply. These terms get bandied about all the time. And, you know, the truth is we don't print money. You know, we haven't print, printed money for over a century in the way that folks talk about it today. All money is created by debt itself. I mean, the two ways, if you look at the money supply, there's two ways the money supply grows. One of those is loans. When a bank makes a loan, they deposit that amount in your checking account. And that deposit is new money that did not exist before, but it is, you know, at parity with the new debt that is created. So that's the principal way that money has been created in the economy, you know, going all the way back to the beginning. And, you know, in fact, you know, 80 or 90 percent of all money that's created is created by bank lending. The other way that money is created, and this is the one that kind of gets endless conversation, is when the Federal Reserve buys a security, usually a treasury security, from the private sector. You know, if you and I own a treasury bond and the Federal Reserve bought it directly or indirectly, they would do that by making a deposit in our checking account. And that creates deposits. And the money supply is just the sum of all deposits plus currency, uh, generally. And that is what we're talking about when we're talking about the money supply is growing. So um, I think you know one of the things that's important to realize is that all money creation is accompanied by debt creation. And it, and and in a sense, you you don't have one without the other. Uh, it, it's impossible to have one without the other. Right. Let's talk for a moment about the dramatic increase in debt that we have seen uh, in the United States, but not just in the United States, also uh, in other countries as well. In fact, just for a moment, I want to ask you about a decision which you made, which is to not limit the scope of your book to specifically 
debt here in the United States, but debt as it is playing out in the other largest economies of the world, uh, the U.K., China, France, Germany, India, and Japan. Um, You could have written a very compelling and complicated enough book uh, without that, but you saw value in drawing in uh, some of these other world economies uh, into this discussion. Tell us why you thought it was important to do that and what the relevance is of, for instance, how debt plays out in a place like Germany or India or China. Well, thank you. Yeah, the, um, there are over 200 countries in the world, but there are seven countries that together constitute about 65 of all world GDP. So, and, you know, the eighth country after those seven is quite a bit smaller than those seven countries. So, you know, in my estimation, if you study the seven largest countries of the world, you've really got an understanding of the whole world. You've really got it covered. So our own economic research covers these seven countries. It's the three Asian countries, which is China, Japan, and India, and the three Euro, you know, European countries, even though I guess the U.K. doesn't consider itself part of Europe these days, but the U.K., France, and Germany, and then, of course, the United States, which is the largest of all. If you understand these seven countries, you understand the world, and that's what we've tried to do. And, you know, there's endless talk. You know, there's all this talk about all the money we owe to China, for example, and how, you know, any number of commentators, you know, worried about, you know, if China stopped buying our debt, woe is us and things like that. Well, we need to understand that that's not something that we need to worry about. We need to understand you know, how much of our debt China really holds. And by the way, we have 30 trillion of government debt, and China holds about a trillion of it, a little over a trillion. So it's, so it's a relatively small part. You know, China sold it all tomorrow. It would not be an issue or a concern because somebody somewhere else would have to buy it. And the reason China has our debt is not because they're sitting there trying to do some nefarious thing with us, it's because we have a trade deficit with China. And so we pay them dollars. And they have to do something with those dollars. And what they generally do is buy treasury bonds. They could buy real estate in the United States. They could do whatever they wanted to. So if you want to, if you're really concerned about the amount of debt that, of U.S. debt that China holds, what you really need to be doing is paying attention and trying to rectify our trade deficit with China, which, by the way, we kind of blithely ignored uh, from the 1980s forward. It's only more recently that we tried to look at it. So to me, uh, the U.S. economy is integrally related to the other major economies of the world. and You can't really understand what's going on unless you understand all seven countries, which we try to lay out. We're speaking with Richard Vague, and we are talking about his new book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. So it sounds like in this central matter of your book, which is that uh, some debt is normal and even necessary, 
uh, but that at some point debt can become excessive and counterproductive. Uh, it sounds like that is not just kind of a straight line threshold, and once we cross that, then uh oh, we're you know, we have too much debt. But it sounds like it's often a matter of how that debt is in relation to other numbers. Uh, what is and, and on a national scale, we're often talking about the ratio of our of our debt to, for instance, our gross domestic product. And I suppose when it comes to an individual household, that's also a way to think about debt and what too much debt is, and that point when debt becomes destructive rather than constructive. Or is that too simplistic? Is it more complicated than that? You know, that's pretty much it. I mean, it, it, it's intuitive. GDP is really another way of saying national income. So if you have a ratio of private sector debt to GDP, you're really saying you have a ratio of all the debt of, in the country in relationship to the comp- country's income. And we all recognize that ratio because when we go down to the the bank branch and try to get a loan, a loan, a mortgage loan, or otherwise, that's the same ratio that, that lenders use. It's your debt to your income. It's that essentially that same ratio when we look at the country as a whole. And in the U.S., coming out of World War II, we had a very low ratio of private sector debt to GDP. It was only about 35%, believe it or not. Today, it's over 160%. So you can see it's increased multiple times in that period. We're simply lugging around way more private sector debt, both as companies and, and households. I mean, really, coming out of World War II was a rather miraculous time from the private debt standpoint. And the low burden of private debt was one of the reasons that uh, our economy grew so robustly in the 60s, 50s, and 60s. And it's really one of the reasons we're growing a little more slowly in more recent decades as we're carrying this load of private sector debt and households and businesses have to divert more of their income to paying interest and pretzel on the debt. When you look at the history of how this has played out uh, in the United States, uh, you you utilize a interesting term that I've never seen before, uh, and I don't know if you coined it or not, but uh, you called it debt staircases. It's kind of a different way to look at what I have heard of, which is a debt cycle. That is, we, as a national economy, sometimes get into these patterns where uh, lending is restricted, and then it becomes less restrictive and more and more unbridled to the point where we're seemingly lending any amount of money to anybody who wants it, and we get into trouble and then have to kind of restrict again. Uh, but you you give us this more specific image of, of a debt staircase that is really kind of an interesting model to think about. Tell us more about a debt staircase, what that looks like, and maybe give us one or two examples uh, in our own history of when and how that has played out. Well, uh, 
I too always assumed, particularly when I was a practitioner, which I, when I was a lender in the banking industry, I too assumed that debt was um, a cycle that you know went up and it went down, and when it came down, it basically went back to the point it had been previously. So. You know, kind of like, you know, in math, when you, if you looked at a sine curve or something like that, you know, goes up and it comes back down and then it goes back up and then it comes back down. Uh, that's not how it happens. And the book gets into that in very plain detail. We, like I said a moment ago, private debt was 35% of GDP in 1945. Today it's over 160% of GDP. That's not a cycle. That's an ever-increasing level of debt. Now, it doesn't go in a straight line between 35% and 160%. It goes up and down. Um, and those up and down periods are our booms and busts. So we had you know, a big increase in private sector debt in the 1980s. This was the go-go Ronald Reagan years. And, and it ended in a crash. It ended in... You know, the stock market crash of 87 and the savings and loan crash of 88, 89, 90, the RTCs, the folks that remember back that far and what have you. But then, even with that crash, it doesn't return to the level it was previously. Instead, it, it returns to a level that is higher than any previous time. And then it ascends from there. So after the 80s, the next big boom was the boom from 2002 to 2007 that led to the global financial crisis. So to me, you know, I, I started by using the word debt cycle, and I kept looking at the data and said, this is not a reasonable or, or accurate way to portray what happens to debt. It's not a cycle. It's a staircase. We mm. go up to the next rung of the stair. And then the next one after that. Right. I mean, in other words, a debt cycle would mean at some point we cycle back to exactly where we were. We cycle back to zero and then start over again. But I think what you're saying is we never do cycle back to zero. When we ratchet things down, it's it's at a higher level than where we started. And lo and behold, what we have is a staircase, an ever-ascending staircase which can lead to an even more precipitous crash and it's not just the u.s every this happens in every country we show that the debt growing faster than gdp or as we just said debt growing faster than income is a phenomenon in all seven of the big seven countries you know japan china uh, even india which is a much younger economy I want to be sure to talk for a moment about one concern that you fold into this discussion uh, that I think is a little bit difficult to to fully comprehend, uh, and that is the matter of inequality and the fact that when we see growth in debt like we are, that 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 lower and middle income households in your words, carry a disproportionate portion of that debt burden. Uh, explain further what you mean, how exactly that works, and how this rise in debt can also lead to 
greater social and economic inequality in our society? Absolutely. This is something that um, uh, folks don't think about, but is fundamental to what has been happening in our economy for decades. And it can be illustrated, I think, in the pandemic. Uh, In the three years of the pandemic, 2020, 21, and 22, uh, government debt alone increased by $6 trillion. And everybody was somewhat aware of this. This was the pandemic relief program. These were the $1,200 checks to all families and the $1,400 checks and so forth. It was $6 trillion in increased debt. Well, in that exact same three-year period, Wealth of households increased by $31 trillion, so far more than government debt increased. And this is a surprise to most folks when they hear this, but two things go on that make that happen. One of them is when government spends money, it goes into the piggy bank, so to speak, of households. The money doesn't disappear. It doesn't evaporate. It goes into the checking accounts of households. So part of the increase in wealth of households was the payments from the government. But most wealth held by households is in two forms, stocks and real estate. So 65 to 70% of all household wealth is stocks and real estate. And what happened, and this has happened, this happened in the pandemic, but it has been happening since you know, the beginning of modern economies is the more debt there is, the more money there is. And the more money there is, higher asset prices become. So this flood of money into the economy caused stock prices to go up and real estate prices to go up. And those were the biggest components of household wealth. So the good news is increased government spending uh, created a much greater increase in household wealth, but then you come to the sticky point, the the problem. That is the top 10% of households own 65% of all the stocks and real estate in the country. And the bottom 60% of the population, that's six zero. That's the majority of folks hold only 14% of the stocks and real estate. So if asset prices go up, almost all of that benefit go to the top 10% of uh, the population. So that inevitably means, by definition means, that the wealthy are getting wealthier and the middle class is uh, net worth is staying roughly the same. That widens inequality. That's one of the most important things to know about the economy. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Richard Vague, and we're talking about his book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Before we get into uh, a couple of your suggestions on on, uh, potential policy changes that could really make uh, an important difference uh, in, in, in people's lives. I want to circle to a point that was very interesting and that caught me by surprise, in which you talk about the whole matter of Americans being 
poor savers. That is, uh, I mean, that, that charge gets leveled at Americans quite often, and perhaps to some extent or at certain points in time with very good reason that we don't save enough money. We spend, <laughs> we spend too much money. We spend more money than we have, which is when you incur debt. But just otherwise, we tend not to be uh, putting away money, uh, saving it uh, maybe to the, uh, to the extent that, that might be uh, uh, a you know, prudent thing to do. You actually suggest that Americans are better savers than our reputation suggests. But it depends on what one means by the term saving, <laughs> saving money or being a saver. I thought this was a fascinating distinction. Can you spell this out for our listeners, what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've been hearing that Americans were poor savers since the 1980s. And I've been hearing that that, that was a fundamental problem in the economy, that, you know, it was the, it was households' inability to save or unwillingness to save that was the culprit for much many of the ills in the economy. So we went and looked at this, and I define savings the way I think anybody, any layperson, if you will, would define savings, which is kind of how much money do you have in your piggy bank? How much money do you have? in your checking accounts, in your Charles Schwab or Vanguard accounts, you know, uh, and it's, you know, you, so you can talk about the financial network of individuals, which is those liquid assets like stocks and bonds and checking accounts, or you can talk about the total network of, of households, which adds uh, real estate to that. And you would net debt out, of course, to do that. And when you do that, and you look at the wealth, the net worth of U.S. households, either financial net worth or uh, total net worth, we're the best savers among the big seven, by far. We're way better savers than you know, Japanese and Chinese and all these others have been getting all this credit all this time. And that's the way any of us would think about savings. Economists talk about net saving and they don't put an S on the end of that word. And for them, it, that's the difference between what, in a given period, be it a year or a decade or a quarter, the difference between what households make in their salaries and in investment income and what they spend. So it's a snapshot at a point in time. And for a lot of reasons we can, we can talk about that would take too long, I think, for your show, that uh, you know that's not the picture of the that also includes you know the appreciation on your home and the appreciation on your stock portfolio and the other things that we would think contribute to wealth. So Americans have done the best job, and you know there's there's really no basis for the criticism that we've long suffered. Hmm. Before we get to a couple of these kind of proposed policy adjustments or changes that you make in your book. I do want to ask you about uh, past crises. You've touched on a couple of them, and of course, your book spends a fair amount of time talking about uh, all that happened back in 2008. And, you know, you've written extensively on the financial crises that have occurred in our in our country. So this is obviously that's something that 
that uh, you you think a lot about uh, and and have spent a lot of time studying. Um, do you feel in general that we understand what happened in 2008 and have learned the most important lessons from that particular financial downturn? Um, you know, I, I really sort of don't. <laughs> you know, we, we've studied uh, these crises. We wrote a book a while back that you were kind enough to mention called A Brief History of Doom where we looked at the 43 biggest financial crises, or banking crises, as some folks call them, in the six largest economies in the world over the last 200 years. And um, so that in the United States, you know, we had our our first big crisis in 1797, then we had another one in 1819, then we had another one in 1837, and 1857, and 1873, and 18. 93, 1907, 1921, the big one in 1929, which really wasn't any bigger than some of the earlier ones, uh, and so forth. So recurring banking or financial crisis, there's something there's, that have been out there since the inception of the country. The same is true in England and Germany and France and elsewhere. And we can go in, and what we find is that it's always a function of excessive runaway lending. It's usually excessive runaway lending in the area of real estate, even though in the 1800s it was excessive lending for railroads. They had some huge, famous railroad crises, such as the 1873 crisis. So it's it's pretty straightforward. You, you lend way too much, you get way too much capacity, the homes don't get sold. The railroads don't get customers. Uh, the debt that was extended for those things is no good, and the banks fail because they made those loans. And then it takes, you know, the economy, since we have such an oversupply, you know, like we had way too many homes in 2010, well, it took a few years for the demand to catch up with the excess supply of homes. And in that period, real estate uh, builders – Home builders kind of have to twiddle their thumbs, so you know unemployment uh, remains high and the like. So the pattern repeats itself over and over and over, and I think more people understand that now than they did before 2008. But it's not universal, and even among policymakers, people tend to still blame government debt and other things that are frankly unrelated to the crisis. So I don't necessarily have confidence that if one happens again, we'll be able to see it and prevent it. Right. So in the, the, the final chapter of your book, uh, you spell out what you call, I, I love this turn of phrase, a suite, S-U-I-T-E. I, I'm a musician, so I guess that's why my eyes lit up when I saw that. A suite of policy ideas related to some of these concerns. And uh, one of them involves us doing a much better job of monitoring uh, levels of private debt and lending practices and so on. And, of course, some of that monitoring occurs. But one of your most important points is that we need to better regulate lending, and we cannot leave too much of that to the the discretion of lenders. I mean, that is a recipe for disasters. The lenders themselves... 
uh, cannot be, in a sense, entrusted with that responsibility, uh, at least not not completely. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, one of the one of the characteristics of a lending boom is that it feels good while it's happening. You know, if you start lending, you know, in, in the in 2004 and 2005 and 2006, as we're making all these home loans, you know, uh, employment increases, salaries increase, more folks are going out to restaurants. It's a boom, and everybody feels good. Now, we're building homes that will never be sold, but we don't realize that yet. So uh, lenders get more and more encouraged and more and more euphoric until it's too late. So, you know, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm not being aggressive in lending, but my neighbor bank across the street is, and their earnings increase, and they pay their people more, and they – pay their shareholders bigger dividends and the directors are happier and they start looking at me and saying, why aren't you doing this? And I say, well, heck, I better catch up. And I start being more aggressive in my lending. And uh, Early on, that helps me and my results as well. But then everybody wakes up one day and we've got way too many homes or way too many of something else and it all comes crashing down. So uh, there's a euphoria that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will, in this. And that's why in the, in the book I talk about, and I introduce some metrics and, and say the regulators uh, need to pay attention to these metrics and be willing to intervene when, before things get too far. Hmm. The other thing that, of course, we want to spend a little bit of time talking about is something to which you devoted an entire book, and that is this notion of debt jubilee. I mean, sometimes we think about that as debt relief, debt amnesty, uh, debt restructuring. I forget. You, you list a whole bunch of kind of alternate terms. But uh, you find yourself drawn to this really ancient term and this ancient concept of debt jubilee and uh, think that that is something that we should try to become a little more comfortable with. Um, even though when we talk about it in really dramatic sweeping terms, it's something that a lot of people sort of shrink away from for, for, for various reasons. Tell us why you find yourself so powerfully drawn to this notion of debt jubilee. Well, first of all, I'd say there's no silver bullet. You know, there's, you know the problems that I introduce in this book are not one where there's this simple you know, one-step solution. There's not one policy formulation that could make it all better and make it all go away. It's going to take a little change here and a little change there and a little change across what you uh, so kindly referred to as that suite uh, of policy recommendations. So I'm not prescribing a panacea, nor am I prescribing something that is legislatively unrealistic. You know, there's certain things you could do that the legislators would never agree to for a variety of reasons, many of which are good. Uh, but I do think, you know, if we, if we were engineers rather than lenders or economists, and, you know, and we were talking about an engine rather than the economy, and we had designed an engine that the temperature always rose, 
you know, today it was this temperature and tomorrow and next week it was at a higher temperature and so forth. As an engineer, you would design something into the system to draw that heat off the engine and prevent the engine from breaking down. We don't do that in the economy. Debt always increases in relationship to GDP, and yet there, broadly speaking, aren't mechanisms for bleeding off the excess. And to me, that's just a design flaw. And so I try to introduce ideas that might be productive there. So, for example, student loans, of which there are 43 million in the country, uh, I introduced the idea that maybe community service would be a way that folks could find early relief of their student loan debt uh, in a way that's fair. You know, relative to mortgages, I, I say that you know if you're underwater on your mortgage or out of the pandemic, you know the payments that weren't made are being tacked on to the back end of mortgages. Maybe there's a way where you could get the lender to reduce your principal and your interest payments or your monthly payments in exchange for you giving the lender some percent of the upside when the home is eventually sold. Kind of a, you know, that's in essence kind of a debt for equity type of a swap. Uh, we talk about bankruptcy laws, and I think there's ways to streamline those that give those who declare bankruptcy a little bit better chance of kind of getting back to and normality, uh, you know, we, we, um, most folks go bankrupt for one of three reasons. You know, is it divorce or an unexpected health problem or an unexpected job loss? And the bankruptcy laws are still somewhat, uh, designed to penalize rather than to repair. And I think there's some changes made there. So it's no panacea, but I think there's ways we can be creative and approach this problem differently. Right. I, I like when you kind of spell this out, you talk about how when there are people who really bridle at the notion of, let's, for instance, talk about student debt relief, since that's been so much uh, in the news lately, that uh, people kind of pull back, some do pull back the notion be, over issues of fairness. Is that really a fair thing to do? Or uh, uh, issues of cost. I mean, how much is it going to cost us for this uh, for us to do this? And then there's this third matter that I hadn't really thought thought so much about, and that is what you term the moral hazard that debt forgiveness might create. That notion that, well, if we can just kind of tear up this piece of paper that says you owe this much money, that that is somehow going to uh, in, in, encourage somebody to kind of run out and just spend more money that they don't have or incur still more debt. And and that's why you've tried to put together some of these debt jubilee proposals carefully in a way that even address that matter uh, so, so that debt might be forgiven, but not in a way that's uh, sort of without other cost or, or without any substance whatsoever. I appreciate that you've thought about it to that extent. Well, you, you know, just the, the idea of just broadly forgiving debt is one that creates a lot of concern and a counter-reaction. You may recall that the Tea Party arose during the Obama administration because Obama was trying to produce some what I thought were fairly mild uh, mortgage relief programs. And, you know, a lot of folks started 
saying, you know, how is this fair? How, how are you, why are you causing taxpayers to, to try to rescue somebody who's behaved irresponsibly? So, you know, it's a, it's a big issue, and it's not just recently that it's been a big issue. It's been a big issue for centuries. So unless you address the issue of fairness, I don't really think it has a chance of being adopted within a society. Well, it will be interesting to see how some of these proposals move forward, and I really appreciate the fact that uh, your thoughtfully constructed proposals uh, are perhaps going to be part of the discussion from here on, and and that, in a sense, a lot of what you have raised uh, might be, in your words, considered a new discipline, debt economics, that we think about our economy and the well-being of our economy with more thought given to this whole notion of, of debt. Do you see this being talked about more and more? You know, the book just came out, and this has been a an area that's been neglected for decades. So I don't expect a change, you know, overnight. But the facts are the facts, and I think our book, you know, draws attention to the facts in a, a hopefully constructive way. So, you know, once... You know, once an idea is out there, it's hard to suppress. So I think over time, uh, the, these ideas that we put forward in the book, and I'm not the only one that's advocating things along these lines, but I think ideas like this will gain credence and become more widespread simply because this is the accurate way to think about the economy. The book, once again, is The Paradox of Debt. A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press and the author, Richard Vague. Richard Vague, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and your book. I learned a lot from both, and I appreciate you taking the time to be my morning show guest today. Thank you so much, and best wishes. I'm grateful to you.